So that's one of, uh, it's a classic. My favorite line was coming up. We couldn't play it that far. Save the neck for me, Clark. I like that part. But uh, my name is Dave Hershey. My wife and I and our kids attend here. I work over in campus ministry at Penn State Berks. And sometimes I come up here. And, of course, if you, most of you have probably seen this movie. If not, you should because it's hilarious. I started laughing just thinking about watching it. I laughed pretty much the whole time I watched it. And I think I was still laughing after it was over for a couple hours because it's, it's hilarious. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's the story of Clark Griswold and his wife and kids and his uh, good-hearted effort to have a perfect, good old-fashioned family Christmas for his family. But uh, as things go along and disasters strike, sometimes because of his choices, sometimes just things that happen because the movie's funny, uh, that good old-fashioned family Christmas never really seems to, to appear. Well, we're continuing a series here uh, at Koinaz, Tim did the last two weeks, called All I Want for Christmas. And this week, uh, in the series, we've been looking at uh, different of God's promises in the Old Testament that Christians see as really fulfilled or coming more clearly in the, in the Christmas story. So we're not looking at the Christmas story particularly, but some of the things that come before it. And if you are new to this whole God thing, church thing, or if you just don't recall, the Old Testament is the chunk of the Bible, the large chunk of the Bible, that comes before the birth of Jesus. And within that, what we call Old Testament, Jewish people may just call it the Bible, uh, within that Old Testament there are these people called prophets. And prophets sometimes heard a word from God, maybe they saw a vision from God, and then they went and they, they shared, they spoke what they had seen and heard. And a lot of times, when I hear the word prophecy, I think a lot of us, we think prophecy is predicting the future. And while there is an element of predicting the future, of course, in the prophets, a lot of what they were doing was giving relevant messages for their own day, telling the people to, like, stop worshiping the wrong gods, stop oppressing poor people, get their act together, and so on and so forth. But within that, there was a future element. So when Christians would, after their experience of Jesus, after the life and death of Jesus, when the early Christians went and reread the prophetic parts of the Bible— Things that maybe weren't as clear, things that weren't understood as clearly before, they kind of saw Jesus fulfilling a lot of these different things. So this morning we're going to look at the prophet Micah, who actually lived around the same time as Isaiah. So if you were here the last two weeks and heard Tim talk about Isaiah, I don't know if they ever actually met, but they lived around the same time. Although the book of Micah is quite a bit shorter, so if you want to read a book in the Bible, uh, Micah may be a good one to try. I don't know. But we're going to read about Micah, and I'm going to start in chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and verses 4 and 5. So Micah says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. So the us in this passage is the people, God's people living in Jerusalem. And they are besieged by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the big, powerful, they had conquered a lot of people, and they had set their sights on conquering Jerusalem now. And into this situation, if you were living in Jerusalem in those days, I mean, a siege 
has always been a scary thing. We, if you've been watching the news, caught a glimpse of what that may have looked like just with the news about Aleppo this week. Uh, it's been like that for, for a very long time, sadly. If you were living in that town that was under siege, you were looking forward to the walls coming knocked down, women getting raped, children being enslaved. I mean, it would be horrible, horrible things that were going to happen. But into this situation, Micah speaks a word of hope that someone is going to come from Israel, from the town of Bethlehem, and is going to be our peace. That peace that we, all, that we all desire, the peace that they all wanted to happen. And this was significant because King David, if you know or heard of him, he was like the greatest king in the history of the people of God, and he was from Bethlehem. So what Mike is saying is that there's going to be someone kind of like this David, who you all remember, did all these great things, saved a lot of people, and this person's going to come along and is going to save us in our hour of need. Now, what's interesting is that if you keep reading the story of what's happening at this time, the siege did not succeed. The people survived. God played a role in that. But no person like Micah described came along to play a significant role in this, in this time. So because of that, the early interpreters, when they read this passage decades or centuries later, they saw what Micah was saying here about this person from Bethlehem as a prophecy of the coming Messiah or the coming Savior. And even after Jesus, Jewish interpreters still saw that, this passage, as a, as a promise. And of course, Christians saw it too. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and when the Christians read this passage, they saw this as pointing directly to the person of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, one of the biographies of Jesus, uh, if you remember the story from Christmas, if you ever heard it before, the Baby Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. And then on the hills outside of, of Jerusalem, outside of Bethlehem, the shepherds are watching their flocks when angels appear in the sky and announce to them the birth of the Messiah, of the Savior. And they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So Micah said that there would be a person from Bethlehem who would be our peace. The angels said that this peace has come in the birth of this newborn baby. And it's important to define peace because I think when I think of peace, I don't know about you, but I think when a lot of people think of peace, we might think of peace as simply an absence of conflict. So maybe two countries are at war, they sign a peace treaty, and the war ends. And we might, we might be tempted to call that peace, even though Buildings have been knocked down. People have lost their lives. People are still starving. There's a lot of animosity. It's not like the people that were recently fighting are all of a sudden going to become buddy-buddy. So we call that peace because it's an absence of conflict, but is that really peace? Or for those of us who have children, your kids are fighting and screaming and kicking and punching, and you separate them and send them to their rooms or however that works in your house. And maybe peace has come to your home, but the kids still want to kill each other, and they're still angry at each other, and is that really peace. When the Bible talks about peace, uh, in the Old Testament, the word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Peace is not just a, uh, the absence of a negative, like we've ended conflict, we've ended hostility, this is gone now. It's not just that, but it's the replacement of this negative with, with something positive or something good. It's the idea that once the conflict is gone, this wholeness or completeness has come, the sense that everything is as it should be. It's not just that the two, uh, two nations have stopped fighting, but now they're actively working for the good for each other. Not just that your kids stop fighting, but they can, I don't know, give each other a hug and 
Does that really happen sometimes? I don't know. Maybe it would happen. That's the goal anyway, right? And really, we all want, uh, we all want this kind of, we want peace in our lives. I mean, like Clark Griswold in the movie clip, as bumbling as he was, his motives were good. Like, he just wanted a peaceful Christmas with his family, something that was good and going to be memorable. And when we look ahead the next week with our families or friends, like, we want to have memories of happiness, of joy, of peace. We don't want there to be conflict and arguments and, and things that we don't want to remember. So there's lots of different directions when we think about peace that we could look at this morning. Uh, we could talk about that peace with others some more, the peace with, with people that we're in conflict with. We could talk about peace with our families, peace with our neighbors, peace with our coworkers. We could look at like the bigger dream of peace on earth, goodwill to men, just the ending of, of war and conflict as a whole. This is something that, I mean, even if we know that Unfortunately, war is something that has to happen sometimes in the world we live in because we live in a broken world where these things just happen. I think if we were picking our or choosing our perfect world, if we were having our dream for what the world could be, none of us would include that. Like our dream is a world where people are at peace. We could talk about peace with our creator. A quote from an early Christian named Augustine, he said, our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Just this idea that until we're right with God and at peace with God, we can't really find that peace with other people. And along with that, we could talk about peace with ourselves, just learning to accept ourselves, to, to like ourselves, love ourselves, be happy with who we are. And if I talked about all four of those, we would be here until Christmas. And I don't think any of us want that to happen. At least I don't, because, no offense, but you know, shopping to do. And, and. So when I was thinking about what to, which of these to focus on, I mean, I kind of went back and forth, but I decided I think the best one to focus on for this morning would be that peace with God, peace with others. My kids, because it's Christmas, have been watching a lot of Christmas um, movies, TV shows, things like that. Um, And it's, maybe it shouldn't be surprising, but it kind of is, how many of these Christmas stories revolve around the horrors of being found on Santa's naughty list. If you, if you have kids, maybe you've watched Dora, Dora the Explorer, and there's a, there's a Christmas story where her friend or enemy, maybe, Swiper, is on the naughty list. Now, I'm not sure. They never really clarify if Swiper was named Swiper, Swiper the Fox, if he was named Swiper by his parents, thus kind of destining him for that job as being someone who swipes, or if he had, like, a different name and then started swiping things and everybody just started calling him Swiper. That's never really clear in the, like, Dora mythology. But... <laughs> But nevertheless, in the story, because Swiper has spent his whole life, like, taking people's stuff, when the Christmas comes, he is on Santa's naughty list. Horror of horrors. And they have to try to figure out a way to get him off that. Then there's Phineas and Ferb, which, honestly, whenever my kids want to watch TV, I really push hard for Phineas and Ferb because this has become one of my favorite shows, I think. If I didn't have kids and I learned about Phineas and Ferb, I might want to watch it anyway because it's really funny. But their Christmas story is it's kind of the same thing for Whatever reason, doesn't really matter, but the whole town they live in is on Santa's naughty list, and Santa's not going to make a visit to their town. And what can they do to get their town off the naughty list? And as I watch these silly kids' shows, like, I wonder, how are these stories shaping the way that kids look at the world? 
how are they reinforcing this idea that if you are a really good person, if you do good things, if you're nice to other people, then you'll get stuff from Santa, or you'll get love from God, or your parents will like you, or people will like you, if you just toe the line and follow the rules. But if you do too much bad, if you cross that, n- that line, wherever it might be, if you're mean or, or whatever it looks like, then you're going to end up on the naughty list. And people or God may not be happy with you. And this is silly to think about, like, kid stories. But it makes me think about growing up in a Christian church. And when I grew up in church, like our church taught us, I learned that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And if I believed in Jesus, had faith, that I would be saved, that I would be right with God. So that I was not taught that you had to, like, earn God's love or anything like that. But at the same time, I got this fear as a child that, yes, like, I can't earn God's love, but even though I have my faith in God, like, maybe I could do something that would make me, like, make God not love me anymore. If I disobey my parents too much, if I watch the wrong thing, find something on the internet that I should be looking at, if I am mean to my class, like whatever it looks like, I I had this fear that because of my sins, because of my misdeeds, that all of a sudden that God who had given me this gift of love was going to say, sorry, you crossed the line, you're you're out. And I've talked to other people who have the same experience where maybe it's over the years you just kind of put your faith in Jesus over and over and over again just to make sure. Maybe it was at summer camp, maybe it was at a church event, but you just get this feeling like, well, I put my faith in Jesus when I was six, but then I did all these bad things when I was seven, so now I'm at this church event, and they're telling me to put my faith in Jesus, and I better do it just to make sure. And then you go up front, and you kneel down at the altar, or whatever it looked like, if you can relate to that. But just this idea that I kept doing things that placed me outside the love of God. I kept doing things that put me on the naughty list, or even I didn't know if I did, so I just better make sure just to be okay. And I still, to some degree, carry some of that insecurity with me today. I work at Penn State Berks in Campus Ministry, and this past October we had our uh, fall retreat. And there's like six or seven other campuses that join us for this retreat, and we take turns planning it. And this year it was our turn to plan it. So put a lot of work into it, plan all the, uh, the, the food, the games, the, the speakers, and everything else. And I actually was one of the people that stood up and did this, spoke two times during the weekend. And then at the end of the weekend, we had people fill out evaluation forms. The students could evaluate right what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, uh, so that we could do this better next year. When I go read those evaluation forms a week later, out of 10 evaluations, like eight or nine are fantastic. This was the best retreat ever. I feel closer to God now. The food was amazing. The games were fun. I made new friends. The talks were good. They were relevant. But those aren't the eight or nine that stick with me throughout my day. It's the one or two I read where they're like, this was boring. This was not worth my money. Your talks were boring and irrelevant. And another, you know, like, and those are the ones where I'm just like, I, I'm terrible. Like, I'm, I've been doing this thing for, I've been working at campus ministry for 10 years, and how come I can't do any better? It's not the eight or nine that tell me I'm doing fine. It's the one or two that say, you're not doing good, that, that 
kind of dictate how I see myself then for the rest of that day. This past summer, my supervisor asked me if I wanted to take on some new duties within our organization. And one of the things I've been able to do for the last, in the, in the fall, is I, each month, I kind of do coaching with the other campus ministers. So I call them on the phone about once a month and just talk about how their ministry is doing, uh, ask them questions, pray for them, give them ideas. But what happens is I talk to these ministers, and again, I've been doing this for 11 years. A lot of them, two, three, this is their first year. And I, like, get off the phone, and I just think, man, these guys are better than I am. Like, I've been doing this for a long time. I should know these things. I'm going to steal all their ideas. They should be coaching me. Like, I don't know anything. How is this happening? And it just feeds into that story that I want to tell myself that I'm not good enough, that I'm not in the eyes of, of other ministers, other campus ministers, people, whoever they may be, that I'm not living up to the standard that I set, that I'm somehow not on the good list anymore. Some of you may think I'm just a crazy person who sorely lacks in self-confidence. Some of you may be able to relate to that. Some of you may go through your life feeling anything but peace with God because you look at yourself, you look inside your heart, and you wonder, man, I'm such a failure. How can God love me the way the Bible says God loves me? We could use even Micah's language of being besieged. And we may have this feeling that it's not like literal armies that besiege us, but we're besieged by our feelings of inadequacy or shame or fear, our feelings that we're not good enough, that we're unloved. And those things just tell us a story of who we are that we cannot but help to often believe. And what pulls me out of that, and what I want to say is the way to get out of that, that being besieged, is that Jesus brings us peace because Jesus reveals a God to us who already loves us just the way we are. I want to share a story from one of my favorite books ever. And I read a lot of books, so I mean, honestly... Uh, Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. I read it probably 15 years ago. I would still say it's top five. You can probably find it on Amazon for like used really cheap. I don't know if you have time to get it to your house before Christmas, but this is a book I think anybody could benefit from reading, so highly recommended. And I'm going to read a story from this book. Um, it's a story that will probably sound familiar to a lot of you. He kind of gives a different take to it. But I think it's a story that really illustrates what peace with God and who God is and, and how we can come to that. So a young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned, and they tend to overreact to her piercings, the music she listens to, the way she dresses. They ground her, she yells, I hate you, and eventually she decides she's going to run away. She visited Detroit before and decided that that's going to be her destination because her parents might think she would run away to somewhere warm, somewhere farther. She doesn't think they'll ever look for her in Detroit. Her second day in Detroit, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He gives her a ride, buys her lunch, finds her a place to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She thinks that she was right all along. Her parents are clueless, and they were keeping her from the good life. This good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car teaches her a few things that men like, and since she's underage, they pay a premium for her. 
She lives in the penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants to. Every now and then she thinks about the folks back home, but their life seems so boring now that she can't even believe she grew up there. After about a year, the first signs of an illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the man turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he says, and before she knows it, she's out in the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and she struggles to get the money to even support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grates outside the big department store. One night as she lies sleeping, all of a sudden her whole life looks different. She no longer feels like that woman of the world she thought she was. She feels like a little girl lost and frightened in the city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs underneath, tight underneath herself, shivers under the newspapers as she piles atop her coat. All of a sudden, something jolts a memory, and a single image fills her mind. Spring in Traverse City, when a million cherry blossoms bloom at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabbed her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and she knows that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. On the third one, she finally decides to leave a message. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops from Detroit to Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or to- so until she could talk to them? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. Maybe they don't even want to see her. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth from those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Please forgive me. She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She has not apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes here, folks, that's all we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in her mirror, smooths her hair, and her, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will even notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she exceeds. There in the concrete walls, plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents, great-grandparents. They're all wearing goofy party hats, blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that says, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her father. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that now. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. God is our loving parent who has never stopped loving you, never stopped loving us, no matter how far we have strayed. 
God is our Father who desires relationship, peace with each and every one of us. Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, wrote in Romans 5, chapter, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. God desires peace with us. It's like we're besieged by all these stories we tell ourselves. But God has already destroyed that besieging army. But we live inside that city, in the walls of that city, and we're not able to understand that God has destroyed that besieging army. And all we have to do is open the door and let God in. So what's stopping you from uh, having peace with God? Your ego? You don't think you really need God? You can get your identity from your work and what you produce? But maybe deep down you know that there's always someone working harder and producing more. Is it your insecurity? You've been burned time and again in your life by people who say they love you, and you can't be sure that God won't burn you in the same way. Maybe God will leave you when you step out of line. Is it your anger? You still haven't forgiven God for taking away that loved one, for not showing, you, showing up when you needed God most? Maybe it's your pride. You've always been a good person. You've always followed the rules. You've always done what everybody expected you to do. But deep down you fear that's still not good enough. Maybe it's shame. God certainly cannot love you because of what you did. And if others knew, they would not love you either. The truth is, though, that none of those things will stop God from wanting to have peace with you. Our, 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 what we need to do is listen to the story that God tells of who we are and not the stories that we tell ourselves. It reminds me of, so, the other night, about a week ago or so, my wife, Emily, was giving Eli, our two-year-old, a bath, and I was reading books to Junia, our five-year-old. And after reading, like, four or five books, I was like, you know what, Junia, I'm, I'm, my, my throat hurts. I'm, I'm, can we take a break from the books? She says, can we watch TV? And I say, sure, why not? So I have my phone. I bring up Phineas and Ferb on my, on my Netflix, because, again, I always push for Phineas and Ferb. And we start watching Phineas and Ferb. And the way the show's laid out, it's like 20 minutes, 22 minutes, and it's two 11-minute stories. So after the first 11-minute story, I pause it, and I say, it's late, you want to get ready for bed? Like, we should get ready for bed. She says, no, no, Daddy, I'm, I'm fine, I'm not tired, I'm good. Like, let's watch the other one. And Eli's still in the bath or whatever, so I'm like, okay, we can watch another one. It's, you know, it's Phineas and Ferb. So we watch the show. And then some of you, if you have kids, may be able to guess what happens next. The show ends, and my happy, awake, joyful, kind, five-year-old daughter melts into a puddle of a human being on the floor. And spends the next 20 minutes lying in the bathroom, like, crying and screaming, I'm too tired to brush my teeth. I'm too tired to go potty. I'm too tired to put my pajamas on. And I'm just like, you know, the lo logic doesn't work. Well, you see, sweetheart, if you just did those things, you would be in bed by now. Like, it doesn't work. I keep trying it. It doesn't work. And to make a long story short, well, I guess that's pretty much the end of the story. Like, eventually, she got her act together. She did all the things she had to do, got to bed. But we're laying there, and she's laying in bed, and I'm getting ready to, like, say a prayer and say goodnight. And she says to me, Daddy, do you still love me? And I'm like, of course I do. Like, I'm not a perfect parent. I'm not going to say I wasn't angry during the 20-minute meltdown. Like, that didn't, feelings of anger come up, not going to lie. 
But like, I never stopped loving her during that. I only wanted peace with my daughter. I only wanted what was best for her. She was the one who couldn't accept that. And I think sometimes when it comes to our relationship with God, we're kind of the same way. God always wants to have peace with us. God always wants to be the one who tells us who we are, how we are loved. And we listen to other stories about shame and fear and insecurity and all these other things and allow those stories to tell us who we are. Uh, Julian of Norwich was a uh, Catholic nun who lived in the 1300s, and uh, I think she really expressed this well in her one writing. She wrote a book called Revelations of Divine Love, which I believe was the first book published, written in English by a woman. And I just found this one quote in there talking about God's love, and I think it, even though it's kind of like old English, a little, a little difficult to understand, I think it really illustrates how God loves us. She says, I saw full surely that ere God, had, God made us, he loved us, which love was never slacked, nor ever shall be. And in this love he hath done all his works, and in this love he hath made all things profitable to us. And in this love our life is everlasting. In our making we had beginning, but the love wherein he made us was in him from without beginning, in which love we have our beginning. And all this shall we see in God without end. So I just love how she's saying, basically, like we had a beginning. We were all born. We were all created. But the love that God created us with has been from forever. And God's love was never slacked, never taken away, no matter how far we may stray. And my biggest hope for us this morning then is for us to grasp the peace that comes in recognizing that we are loved by and thus at peace with our Creator. And I just want to share three practices that I think might be helpful as we go through our lives and try to do that. And the first one is simply that we need to listen to God's story of who we are as much as we can. For me, listening to God's story for who we are means simply coming to a place like this every single week, or as many weeks as I can at least. And through song, led by the worship team, through prayer, through Tim's sermons or whoever else is up here, just hearing that story over and over again, that God loves us just the way we are. Because when I go through the other six days of my week, there's a lot of other stories coming into my life. It's that you know, Christmas story, the naughty list, that story that I'm not good enough, the story that everybody's better than me, that if only... Those are the stories that consume my week. And if I'm not making an active effort to, to surround myself with a different story, it's those other stories that I'm going to end up allowing to dictate how I see myself. And along with that, I think daily practices, spending time in prayer, reading the scriptures reading other books, maybe listening to podcasts, just whatever it looks like, listening to music, Christian music, to get that story in our lives as much as possible. Because again, the other stories are so quick to be there. We need to listen to the story that tells us who we really are and who God really is. A second practice then is to begin practicing peacemaking in the world right now. I believe we go forth to be peacemakers in the world. Jesus, even in, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, blessed are the peacemakers. And I believe we are sent, as, if you're a Christian, into the world to be someone who brings peace to people. 
And I think we can do that best when we are at peace with God. I think moving towards peace with God is essential if we're going to do peace with others. But caveat would be, I don't think you need to be perfect to be used by God in this way. Because none of us are perfect. I suspect that for the rest of my life, I'm going to struggle with something. I don't think that those feelings of insecurity or fear or shame, they're not just going to like disappear tomorrow. Now, I'm hoping that in the next 10, 20, 30 years that I live, those feelings are more spaced out. Maybe I don't feel them quite as much. But I think they're going to be there. Like, I'm never going to be perfect. None of us are. God can use us broken people who feel not at peace at times with God and with others. God can still use us to bring peace with others. But I do think that as we improve, that we will find ways to be used even more to bring peace with others. And bringing peace with others can, can look like a lot of things. It can look like simply listening to someone else in your life. Listening to that other person, the coworker, the neighbor, listening to their story, listening to their perspective rather than rushing to judgment, thinking you have it all figured out. Working for peace could be uh, praying for that person. Praying for the person that you're not really liking that much in the moment. Wishing them well rather than holding anger or a grudge against them. Working for peace could mean uh, confessing your own mistakes or sins or errors, however you want to put it. Approaching that person to confess where you were wrong rather than waiting for them to grovel to you and confess. Or if that's too big of a step for you at this point, it may just mean confessing those things to God, writing it out in a journal or a piece of paper, getting your, your confession into the world as a kind of first step towards confessing to others. Or it may mean confronting someone who has harmed you. But doing that confrontation in a way to, with a, with, a, with a motivation to restore the relationship, to bring in love, not confronting them in an effort to like crush them down to nothing. A third way that we can work, I think, practice peace in the world is to remember, this kind of ties in really closely with the first one, but in the midst of the dark days that we live in, know that God's dream for peace will come. And I really want to share, uh, when I was studying Micah, reading Micah this week, uh, probably two of my favorite verses in the Bible were in Micah, so I think I added this point in just so I could say these verses, I think they're really good. But uh, Micah, this is from the chapter before we read earlier, Micah 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. So Micah gives this image here of, like, peace, where people are taking their weapons of war, their weapons of death, their swords, their spears, and they're, like, shaping them and turning them into weapons of life, weapons of gardening, uh, pruning hooks and, and, and plows. This image of peace where everyone is able to sit under their own fig tree, which kind of sounds silly to us, but in those days, fig trees and vines were symbols of people who had a lot of money, people who were well off. If you had your own vineyard, your own fig trees, you were someone who could take care of yourself. And Micah is saying that the dream of for peace on earth is when everybody has what they need and therefore nobody's fighting with each other anymore. So again, there's this idea of peace is not just this absence of conflict, 
but that we're working for the good of others. We're beating our swords into plows. We're, we're not using anger, but we're using good towards other people. And we look at our world even today, and Micah was 2,000, what, 700 years ago? Something like that? We're still not there. I mean, we could mention anything that happened this week. Aleppo's the one in the news. Preach this sermon in a month, I'm sure you could fit in a different horrible tragedy that just happened because, unfortunately, they keep happening everywhere, all the time. We don't live in this world yet. But part of what motivates me to get out of bed in the morning, part of what motivates me to keep on following Jesus is this vision of the world. That the God who promised Micah that peace was coming, the God that fulfilled that promise in the coming of Jesus, and the God that then sends us in the world to be peacemakers, still has more promises that are going to be fulfilled. That there's a better, peaceful world coming. And the answer isn't then to sit around and be like, well, that'll be great someday. But the answer is to go back to the previous point, to look at that future, be motivated by that, and then to go in the world and to pull that future into the present to be peacemakers now who are able to give a glimpse of that coming world by working for peace in our world right now. As Julian of Norwich said, I, I want to throw up one more quote by her very briefly. She says, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. God's dream for the world for peace is coming. I think the only question that I am left with is will I join God working for that peace in the world or will I allow other stories to be told of who I am and just kind of cower and be besieged by my own insecurities fears shame so one thing um, we've been doing Tim's been doing the last two weeks is he's been having us we've been listening to Christmas hymns and to give people time to give you all time to reflect so here in a moment we're going to play a song for about two or three minutes And just take time to pray, think, meditate. I would encourage you to think about peace. Maybe that means um, peace with God. You're unhappy with yourself. You don't like yourself. You're not sure if God likes you either. And think about what it would look like to see yourself as God sees you. Maybe you're more struck by peace with others. Maybe there's people in your life that you are in conflict with. and You can pray for them. Think about what it would look like to work for peace with them. If you can think about Jesus' call to be a peacemaker, that vision for the world that we're working towards, I don't know, but I would encourage you during this time to take time just to think, pray, and meditate on some of those things. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, bringing us all here. I pray that you would bless each person's uh, preparations for the Christmas holiday. I pray for everybody's travels coming up in the next week who are traveling. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into this holiday that we would find um, peace with you, that we would find peace with ourselves, um, that we would work for peace with others and that we would keep alive that dream of peace for the entire world. And I pray that you would use us as your instruments in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.